The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. about to inspire you with the stories of real people. Welcome to A Current Life with your host, Jimmy Gould. In the next hour, you will meet one of the most interesting and successful people in the world. Listen as Jimmy gets their real story of success, both the highs and the lows. We hope that you take with you some of the ideas we will share today and embrace your own journey. Now, here's Jimmy. Welcome back to another edition of A Current Life. I'm your host, Jimmy Gould, and I'm very excited to welcome back my special guest, Alexandra Cousteau. Alexandra, welcome back to A Current Life. Thanks, Timmy. Well, for those of you tuning in uh, who did not hear our show back uh, in the early spring when Alexandra was a guest, Alexandra is a National Geographic Emerging Explorer, filmmaker, and globally recognized advocate on water issues. She continues to work of her renowned grandfather, Jacques Cousteau, and her father, Philippe Cousteau, Sr., uh, she serves as Senior Advisor for Oceana on a prestigious Young Global Leaders Council and Global Agenda Council on Oceans of the World Economic Forum. And in 2008, she launched the nonprofit Blue Legacy Project to help people understand and value their relationship with water. Uh, Alexandra, as you know, this show is uh, about life's journey and the ups and the downs that we all go through to get what each of us term our success or wherever we're looking to go. Uh, the last time you were on a show, we talked a little bit about your growing up and your past and the projects you're working on. So I would like to at least go back and revisit a little bit of your growing up days and the influences that your phenomenal grandfather and father had on you and your interests and what developed into your great passion for saving the uh, planet and for the water and for the Blue Legacy Project. So what were you like? Where did you grow up? And tell some of our guests that. Some of our <laughs> um, yeah, I, I spent uh, a lot of time on the road, actually, as a child. Um, I left on my first expedition when I was just a little over four months old um, and spent you know, much of the next three and a half years on expedition. Uh, and we've got lots of photos where you can see me helping the crew and driving in the Jeeps in Africa and helping the, the cook you know, prepare the meal and set the table and... Um, it, I, you know, I often joke that I um, imprinted on that way of life like a baby bird imprints on its mother, and I think you know, it's, it certainly was a big influence in my life. Even though I don't remember it specifically, uh, I don't ever feel as excited and at home and purposeful as I do when I'm on expedition, still to this day. So are you... Are you... Uh, more comfortable kind of being out there in the, you know, and, and learning new environments and learning about different cultures and things like that. Uh, I assume that, you know, that's been your life and it seems like that's your journey and your passion. So uh, how, how did that really get shaped for you and in and, 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 and your growing up days with your grandfather and your father? 
And your mom. Well, I, I continued to be on expedition with my family, um, you know, and, until I was a teenager, and um, I, uh, I was constantly exploring. And, you know, it, sometimes it was exploring a place on the other side of the world. Sometimes it was just exploring the creek in, you know, my backyard or um, a beach in the summertime or tide pools. Um, but I was always out exploring. And I think I was a little, like, different from my peers um, when I was growing up. You know, I, I didn't really, you know, Cabbage Patch Kids were all the rage. I had one. I didn't really care about it. But, uh, you know, I was out catching frogs and tadpoles, and I was out in the woods with my dogs and climbing trees and looking for salamanders and just exploring, exploring, exploring. And I think that really shaped what I do today in a couple of ways, actually. Um, you know, I still be, love being out there um, exploring, and um, but I've also seen a lot of the places that I explored as a child start to disappear. Um, you know, the tide pools that I loved in Maui are gone. Um, they're covered in green slime from nutrient pollution from hotels that don't manage their waste properly. And, um, you know, the, the beaches that I knew... Um, and the south of France have, are not the same. There's not the same biodiversity. There's not the same creatures um, near shore that, that were there that I knew um, when I was young. And I think seeing that loss, you know, is, is obviously really sad for me, especially as the mother of a young child. I have been so looking forward to taking her back to some of those places and sharing that with her. And you know, a lot of them are gone now, so I can't do that. But I think it underscores the importance of taking notice of what we have and what we're losing. And, you know, when it's not some, from my perspective, it's, it's not a political issue. It's, it's not, you know, it's, there's all this rhetoric going around about the environment. And I often tell people to just stop for a moment and look around your community. And if it's a community you've lived in for a long time, look at your water places, the creeks and, and lakes and streams that you knew as a child, and look at how they've changed. And, you know, when I talk with people in communities across America, nine times out of ten they tell me that um, those places that they loved as a child have changed or have disappeared. And I think um, once we take notice of it, we realize that that uh, there are problems in, in our water world and um, the encouraging part is that there's a way to be part of the solution to solving that. And I think, if anything, my childhood taught me the value of those places. You know, um, as I look back, I, I was never indoors when I was growing up. I mean, we had a big family, six kids, and, <clears throat> and we were always out doing things and, you know, just exposed to the outside, the environment, and learning about things. And, and it seems today and you are um, a mother of a, of a young girl, Clementine, and it just seems that we're all drawn to this new electronic age and, and, and all the information travels so quickly, and, and we're kind of all wired in and plugged in, especially the younger generation. So I, I assume that's an issue that you'll probably have to take Clementine, if you haven't done it already, and throw her into the ocean like you were thrown at a very young age because we got to do something to break the habit. Uh, I know when I walk in my house and I see my my young boys, they're all just, you know, plugged into the television and computers and phones, and and they're really missing so much that's going on. So I would think that your journey of education 
and of making people aware of really what our water systems really represent, because that's really the foundation of our of our planet. Uh, it's got to be a more difficult task in one way, and yet information travels quickly so people can get your education and your information. How does all that play into what you do and, and, and with Blue Legacy? Well, Blue Legacy is really a storytelling platform, and, and in 2009, um, I had just gotten back from living in Central America where I was you know, doing regional campaigns against shark finning and um, working on marine mammal protection legislation and working in the communities and marine protected areas and all this stuff. And I realized, you know, we're so disconnected from the oceans. And even the people who are in the field with me made personal choices. Um, for example, in the seafood that they ate, they were ordering in local restaurants the very species that had been overfished. And, you know, they, they were working on helping fishermen overcome the impacts of overfishing. And here they were choosing to eat overfished species. And so I think there was that was really influential in, in the way I saw things because I realized how disconnected we are from the consequences of our decisions downstream from where we are. And um wanted Blue Legacy to be a voice for water issues, for communities, for stories that we really need, um, just to understand what the situation is and, and how we can be part of the solution. And so in 2009, we did a global expedition um, across five continents and uh, looked at water issues globally. And when we came back to America, people said, wow, you know, that was great. We loved your films and your photos and your blogs. And we followed along, and it was really interesting. And clearly there's a global water crisis. We're just really relieved it's not happening in America. And I realized there's this myth of abundance that informs the choices that we make. And so we're over-allocating our water resources. We're uh, carelessly polluting them. And... So that has serious repercussions just in the quality of our community, the quality of our life, our health, um, our kids' futures. And so in 2010, we did this um, grand expedition, 140 days across Canada, U.S., and Mexico, looking at the water crises that we have here in our own backyards. And I'll tell you, Jimmy, that expedition informed more of my understanding of the global water crisis than being in India and Africa and the Middle East. Um, because we we take this precious uh, resource for granted, and yet um, it's it's really in crisis. The Colorado River doesn't reach the sea. The Mississippi River ends in a dead zone. Over 60% of rivers, lakes, and streams in the American Southeast are too polluted to fish, drink, and swim in. Um, the drought obviously has has worsened a lot of issues for farmers and industry and municipalities. And, um, you know, we were up in the Great Lakes looking at those issues. And so I think, you know, our purpose at Blue Legacy is to tell those stories and empower people to write themselves into the stories of, of their region, their community, by sharing these short films and, and photographs with people in their own circles of influence. And, um, and it's been quite successful, to be honest. You know, we've become a voice for... Um, just regular people who are working in their communities to protect a resource. And we're nonpartisan. We believe um, that access to abundant and healthy water is something that we should all have access to. But it's also something that increasingly we need to work for. And I'm hoping 
And it's been my experience so far that these issues can bring people together. Well, you know, I think one of the great injustices is that it's become politicized. And I think that, you know, it's unfortunate because, first of all, and I'll quote you, you say there's remarkably little we can do to shape productive conversation on water issues until we return to a simple truth we all learned as children. We share a single hydrosphere and are connected through the water cycle, each of us positioned quite literally downstream from the other. Water is the defining issue of the 21st century, our century. As we work to better understand how it connects us all, I believe we will realize that we can be, that we must be connected and working together for solutions as well. You know, it really does tell the story because most of, of the planet is water. Most of us is made up of water. And everything does flow together. And if we stop the connection, we're bound. And the connections, I assume, are a heck of a lot worse than they were 10 years ago and five years ago and certainly hundreds of years ago. And it seems that there's a lot of blockage in the world. I mean, I personally, on a spiritual level, think that most of the people that walk around are blocked. You know, they don't, they don't get it and they don't understand and they don't necessarily want to get it. And so you really have the job of, of getting people to understand that we're all connected. We all have the same goal, and therefore we have to work together, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or regardless of what you are, so that we can save this planet. You know, it's not even about us. It's not even about our children. It's about, you know, future generations of children. And, and it does remind me a little bit about what we went through in the recycling kind of, 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 of period of time when, that was a big issue, and how we can recycle instead of just throwing things out. So I really applaud your work and your passion about it, and I really want people, and it's why I've invited you back on the show, um, because I think it's such a big issue, and um, you know, it's my hope that you'll be on the show many times to try to educate people so that they can really understand that we don't need to politicize something that is fundamental to our way of life and to the survival of our planet. I couldn't agree more, Jimmy. I couldn't agree more. So as you, as you went about your kind of travels as a young girl and growing up and, and with the influences you had from, from your parents and <clears throat> grandparents, um, what, can you name one particular travel or destination that was really your favorite and that really shaped, helped shape where, where, where you were headed? I'm sure you have oh, so many of them, but maybe one. Um, you know, it, it's funny because you experience things differently from one age to the next. And yeah. you know, I remember when I was uh, 11 years old, I was on the Calypso in French Polynesia. Uh, we were stationed there doing a film on, on French Polynesia. And I went out in the Zodiacs every day with the crew, and we were diving and... Um, it was just very exciting. And, um, and you know, certainly at that point, I, you know, at 11, I didn't have a deep understanding of environmental issues. I just was you know, overwhelmed by the excitement of the adventure and the camaraderie of the crew and you know, being part of this very special, very unique uh, endeavor. And, um, and I think it was later, you know, when I was in college, I had constantly been traveling my entire life, um, even when it was just on my own, just venturing out into the world and um, feeling the exhilaration of being in a new place and, and um, seeing new things. And it was really 
in college and in my early 20s that I, all of the things that I'd heard my grandfather talk about for so long, I started to see firsthand in the field. And um, it was a sobering realization for me. And I, I don't think I ever considered doing, I, I sort of never asked myself what I was going to do when I grew up. Mm-hmm. As it was just a foregone conclusion, I guess, that I would do this. Um, I didn't know how, and it's evolved over time, but, and I'm sure it will continue to evolve. But I think each of those journeys was really formative, and I would have to say my 2009 and 2010 expeditions, I was in the ro- on the road for six or seven months a year, both of those years, and just immersing myself in these issues from Australia, Cambodia, uh, Botswana, India, Israel, Jordan, um, and then across North America. And I, I think that was really one of the greatest times of just understanding when everything just clicked. Um, and, and it certainly led to exactly what we're doing right now. Um, it's just, I don't know. You know, they say being out in the world and traveling is the best education, the best school. And, um, and I would have to say in my case it certainly was. I just, I loved it. And it really has shaped my understanding of the world that we're in. I mean, you're... you're... You're so fortunate in that in that one way, particularly to have been put in the environments that you were exposed to, and 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 just know it's it was a part of you. I mean, so many people go through their life and they don't know what they want to do. And it took me a long time to figure out that I love to build things and build things with people and create new things and bring new things to life and. You know, and when people would tell me I couldn't do it, of course, I immediately went after and did it because <laughs> the worst thing you could do, if you didn't want me to do something, you never wanted to tell me I couldn't do it because I was going to go do it. And, uh, right. you know, when when we talked the last time, it was so clear to me that this is just, it's it's your chemistry. It's just who you are. And, and you know, uh, I think, you know, in thinking about this show and, and some of the conversations we've had about Blue Legacy and, I would like to tell our listeners that this is a, a becoming something that I am going to do everything I can to help you in your in your um, pursuit of of what you're doing because I think it's so worthwhile and 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 we're going to do everything we can to help you and uh, but you know so many people I think are just afraid to face things that are difficult challenges and difficult things and and where they're out of their comfort zone. Uh, mm-hmm. You and I both climb mountains, and you know we're. Well, I do it because it takes me out of my comfort zone. So I'm curious, you know, when you first hit the water at a very young age, can you think back on what that was like? And obviously, you know, you you didn't really know what your grandfather represented. I don't think because you were too young, but yet, you know, I know from my standpoint, I never miss watching him every week, and. Mm-hmm. I was so fascinated by what he was doing. So what was that moment like, and what's that moment like today? And do you have fear uh, when you go into the water? Is it something that people can get over? And, and my last question is really an important one, because I think the education process really needs to go into the schools, and we need to have programs where we can get young people out into the world to see what you saw when you were young, because ultimately it's what shapes their thinking. 
Well, it it does. And, you know, I learned how to swim before I could walk. And so water has always been an incredibly comforting place for me. I just love it. Um, and I, I don't have a fear of water at all, um, which actually has sometimes been a problem. But, <laughs> I um, would bet. You know, it's. I don't it's think I'm going to follow been, you down there, but you know, maybe I will one day. But it, that you know, if you don't know it, it, it's like all of a sudden you might. I was watching a show the other day, and it was about sharks, and and you know, we were raised on Jaws, you know, and yeah. yet that's probably the most was the hor- most horrible thing you could do to that to that species. Absolutely, you know, but, I you know, I blame Jaws for a lot of things. Um, mm-hmm. It's one movie my daughter will never see until she's over eighteen, um, <laughs> because you know, sharks are some of the most extraordinary creatures in the world. And I've been in the water with hundreds of them um, wow. at a time. And, and, uh, and they're the, the most magnificent and misunderstood creatures you could ever imagine. Um, and so Jaws has definitely done them a disservice. And, you know, the reason that they had to get a mechanical shark for that movie is because you could never get a real shark to exhibit that kind of behavior. It just would never happen. Wow. So, um, you know, it's, but, it was it was definitely um popular film it's it's unfortunate but getting back to travel i mean it's it is a wonderful way to um experience the world and and have a broader understanding and we've actually had so many people write to us and say alexandra i want to go on expedition with you i want to go out and experience the world with you what you do is so cool and um you know, I've never been able to take people on expeditions before, but um, we actually are offering an opportunity for people to join me in the Okavango Delta in April. And um, I'm really excited about it because it's the first time I've ever done this. And uh, we're going back to um, where we did our Botswana expedition and um, pulling in uh, Matt Ives, who's this amazing Botswanan um, who was our guide, and he grew up in the Delta and has spent his whole life there and can explain everything. And this, the, the Okavango Delta, in my opinion, is one of the wonders of the world. It, it, I just fell in love with it. It's one of the most beautiful places I've seen. And um, it is one of the last pure, wild, functional water ecosystems in the world. And, um, and it's just... it's something everybody should have an opportunity to see. So, so how does in, somebody in April, join you on that expedition? I'm sorry? How, does, how, how do our listeners, if they want to join you on that expedition, what do they do? Well, we've got, um, we've got limited space, but they can go to my website, which is alexandracousteau.org backslash travel. And um, all of the details, the itinerary, everything is on that page. And um, you can send us an email at Travel at bluelegacy.net, and um, we can we can still we still have room on it, um, but it's it's going to be really exciting because it's it's just oh it's so incredible. So and it, I can't wait to go what back. What is it like uh, being there? I mean, what in terms of if you can describe it? Because you obviously mentioned on your last show was one of your favorite places in the world. Yeah, it is. I can't wait to go back. Um, and what we're going to be doing is uh, traveling through three different places in the Okavango Delta. Um, and, you know, it's one of those places you fly in to the Delta on a bush plane and you land on a, on a, a tarmac that's in the middle of nowhere. 
and the our guides and hosts will be waiting for us, and we will pile into the Land Rover. And, you know, last time it took us an hour and a half to drive five kilometers to the lodge because there was so much wildlife clogging wow. the roads. Um, so we stopped and we saw zebra and elephants and giraffes and you know, they were all just walking along and hanging out, and it was incredible. And we'll have um, some really special evenings organized um, with uh, indigenous people and um, lifelong inhabitants of the Delta, and we'll see some incredible places. I just, I can't wait for it. I'm so excited. <laughs> and that's going to be in April? That'll be in April, yep. What's the weather like at that time of the year? Beautiful. Absolutely beautiful, and it's it's a delta. So we'll be traveling by Land Rover, by plane, um, and by Makoro, which is these long dugout canoes um, with um, uh, one of the guides standing in the back and two people sitting, and they pull you through the delta. And um, so there's papyrus and there's reeds and um, hippos and. Um, antelope and birds of prey and egrets and I mean the, the wildlife is absolutely abundant and spectacular and fearless. They have no fear of people. Obviously, they're not dangerous either, but but they have no fear. So they're just they're just there. You wake up in the morning and you see elephants passing in front of your tent and baboons and you know. But when I was in the Serengeti, um, uh, actually for my honeymoon, the uh, we saw. These incredible, we saw everything, but the, the baby cheetah that came up to our Range Rover, it was right out in the wild, and, and, and it was in a private reserve that uh, 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 Paul Tudor Jones owned, and, and it was like 400,000 acres. And it was fascinating because the mother let the cheetah, the babies, come literally to the, in the little pond that was right next to the Range Rover, which was an open, I mean, there was nothing we could do. We weren't scared. But it was pretty fascinating, and, and the cheetah, the babies were able to come up and just hang out, and the mothers sat up on a hill watching. And mm-hmm. I never thought that was possible because I never thought that a, that a mom would ever let the babies be in that type of setting. And it wasn't a tame place. It was all wild. Everything was walking around. We encountered, you know, herds of elephant, and we had one little elephant try to kind of throw his ears up and make a noise and kind of got a little bit mad at us, but... You know, what we learned was it's just this beautiful world that should never go away. I mean, just it just can't go away. And, and there's so many things that, that are endangered today. And, and so what you're about and what you have created in, in, in your organization is really a way of being able to preserve this beautiful planet and, and its assets, the things that really matter in life. You know, and that really matter because we're here, I think, for a much bigger purpose to leave the place better than when we found it. And I think that your work is is key to that. So I would like you to talk a little bit of, before we take a break, a little bit about Blue Legacy and and kind of your mission. And, and you know, maybe what we'll do is uh, uh, kind of get into that a little bit and the work that you're doing right now because... Um, you know, it's just so important. Um, we're going to probably just take a short break. Uh, this is Jimmy Gould with Alexander Cousteau. The show is brought to you by Smartwater. And uh, please stay tuned. We'll be, be right back. 
Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Do you have career aspirations that seem beyond what you think you can afford? At Ohio Midwestern College, you can transform your hard work into a bachelor's degree in business administration, education, or Christian ministries. Call 1-888-887-4300 or check out www.omw.edu to learn how you can afford a fully accredited degree today. Ohio Midwestern College. Affordable. Professional. Genuine. Our open enrollment starts today. Call us now at 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. That's 1-888-887-4300 or on the web at www.omw.edu. Do the adventures of Indiana Jones leave you curious about this exotic and unusual profession? If so, don't miss Indiana Jones, Myth Reality and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. You'll learn about forensics, ancient civilizations, and human origins. Listen to Dr. Schuldenrein and colleagues discuss their excavations and related archaeological topics, ranging from the unique to the sublime, and yes, even the mundane. Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, live Wednesday, 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to A Current Life with Jimmy Gould. If you have a question or comment for Jimmy or his guest today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. If you'd like to send an email, the address is acurrentlife at yahoo.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to A Current Life uh, with my special guest and friend, Alexandra Cousteau. Before our break, uh, Alexandra, I wanted you to let our listeners know about Blue Legacy and the mission of Blue Legacy and some of the things that you're working on right now so that we can kind of get the word out there and try to help. Well, um, Blue Legacy, you know, on, on the tail of the 2010 expedition across North America, I took some time to sit back and, um, you know, think about the direction we wanted to go in. Um, I, it was the year 2011 was when I had my baby and I had maternity leave, so I had a lot of time to think about it. And I realized that there's still so much work for us to do in North America. There was enormous momentum coming out of our 2010 expedition. Um, expedition uh, communities that we'd stopped in and visited with were so excited about what we were doing. And, um, and I had spent so much time in, you know, two dozen different communities supporting local waterkeeper organizations and understanding their challenges and reaching out to their their communities um, that I wanted to continue and, and, and move that forward. So looking ahead, I think what we're, we're aiming for in 2013 is to continue to do a series of expeditions around North America, um, probably one every three or four months, where we can go and, and film and, and you know, have 
have the opportunity to tell the story of that place, um, but also spend some time with the community, um, understand their challenges, what's going on, who the water conservation organizations are, um, what the community is concerned about, get out in the field with them, speak at the schools, talk to the, the decision makers and the businesses, and really bring their local issues to the forefront of their conversation and try to catalyze a discussion around how they can make their water resources healthier um, and more abundant. And so we, uh, we're working on that. Um, but another thing that's really important to me is to make sure that all of the partners that we have, and you know, we distribute our films through a whole network of media partners from National Geographic to Mother Nature Network and U.S. State Department and, and just dozens more, um, trying to get this, these stories out to people. And, um, and I realized that in addition to that, I want to make our footage available to our nonprofit partners so that they can continue telling these stories after we're gone. And um, and that was something that was important to me that was really well received by uh, the Waterkeeper Alliance and River Networks. And um, so we're working on catalog- cataloging our you know, terabytes of digital um, content so that it's searchable and tagged and, and we can make that available to people so that they can tell their stories. And I think that's that's um, that's something that's incredibly this is important. really a photo bank so that people would have the opportunity to view that footage um, and, and have access to it, especially with all the high-definition footage that's, that's becoming available to people and, uh, today, right? Exactly. A film and photo bank um, right. that is accessible um, for free to nonprofit organizations. Yeah, that would be really great. You know, because when you go into these communities... I mean, once you get past the onslaught of, you know, all the politics and all the different stuff that goes on, you know, water's their number one asset. And I assume they're rivers or whether they're, you know, oceans or whatever. That is the thing that is the, 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 that keeps them going. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and so, you know, when you really break it down, I would think they would welcome you with open arms, and they probably haven't had that up until now. Is that probably true? Well, it is. And I think we have this, um, you know, very false perception of environmental issues generally. You know, it, we have this idea that it's, it's the environment or the economy. And we don't realize that actually um, we need a healthy environment so that we can have a strong economy. No community wants to live in a place with polluted water. And I saw that firsthand in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I've seen it elsewhere as well. You know, no, n- people can't thrive when their water is polluted, their air is polluted, um, their forests have turned to deserts. Like, just, it's not a place people can thrive and be prosper. So that's especially true when it comes to water. And I think, you know, if if we can have a sensible conversation around how we're going to protect the quality and quantity of our water um, and understand that an investment in our water is an investment in the quality of our life and the prosperity of our community, then I think people can come around and sit at the same table and have that discussion. Um, and I would hope that that discussion could go beyond this you know, silly divide about the economy or the environment. It's been proven that 
we can have both, and it can be a win-win situation. We just have to do things differently. And I think, you know, there are people who don't want us to do things differently, and so they oppose that. But, um, but people, you know, sensible people in our communities need to understand that it's a win-win. And um, I've met too many people who are eating polluted fish from their rivers, who are um, sick from drinking polluted water, who are um, witnessing, you know, massive fish kills, massive dead zones, um, the drying up of wetlands, just too many bad things are happening and it's devastating their communities. And the one thing I think we all need to understand, um, Jimmy, is that we live in a world um, that is made up of watersheds. And we learn about the water cycle in grade school, but we sort of forget how that works when we go, you know, into adulthood and thinking about work and family and the rest. But, you know, our water comes from somewhere. It comes um, from headwaters, usually where there's a forest, and that forest captures the water, filters it, you know, um, funnels it into a river. That river flows across the land through our communities and out into the ocean. And so when we start thinking about where our water, in whatever community we live in, our water comes from and what happens to it as it flows through our communities, through our backyard, through our homes, and where it goes when it leaves us, it gives us an opportunity to understand the local threats to that resource and opportunities to be part of the solution. And over and over and over again, I have seen communities come together across party lines um, where it wasn't a rich or poor issue, it wasn't a red or a blue issue, it was a community issue and it was something they had in common. And um, organizing all sorts of you know, water cleanups and events through their churches, through their associations, through their town halls, through their local water conservation group, and it became a community building experience. So when you talk about watershed-first thinking, that really is, is, would refer to the whole system and the integration of the whole system because it all connects somewhere, right? And, exactly. and it's when that connectivity breaks down that we have problems. Right. So when you look at a watershed, you know, it, it does two things. A watershed does two very important things, which we call ecosystem services, and which, you know, um, those services are worth billions of dollars to us every year, and we couldn't even reproduce them if we wanted to. So as we destroy the integrity of a watershed by cutting down forests unsustainably, um, filling in wetlands, um, channelizing rivers and separating them from the lakes, um, the backwater lakes that they feed into in the rainy season, when we um, dredge out the bottom and remove all sorts of important ecosystem services that, that usually rivers um, provide with us, for us, we're reducing two things. We are reducing our ability to have high-quality water because all of those things, the forests, the wetlands, the buffer zones, filter our water for us in, in really important ways. So by removing that, we have lower quality of water. And, um, and the quantity of water is also impaired because these lakes, these streams, these wetlands and forests, they store water um, in, in times of, of floods and, and rainy seasons, and then they re-release that water in times of, of dryness and drought. And so it, it really creates a system where our water quantity is pretty stable and, and we're able to manage it. 
um, the Mississippi River floods from a couple years ago that was directly related to the way we have channelized the river, filled in the backwater lakes and uh, filled in the wetlands and, and destroyed so many of the functioning buffer zones that that have always been there to manage the quality and quantity of that water. And, you know, as, as we know, um, the quality of the Mississippi River is so degraded it results in a dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so, you know, that is an issue that isn't just happening in the Mississippi. It's happening all over the country in, in small watersheds and large watersheds. And in some places, like the Colorado River, you know, that's a river that passes through multiple states, um, it's 12, over 1,200 miles long, and it, it, you know, we think it's just happening between the walls of the Grand Canyon. The Colorado River is a magnificent resource, and it's so over-allocated that it doesn't reach the sea anymore. And freshwater reaching the ocean um, is what creates estuaries and you know, fish nurseries. It's one of the most productive places in the world's oceans. Our fisheries depend on estuaries. So when we cu- cut rivers off from the ocean... Um, we're destroying our fisheries and we're destroying an incredibly important resource that contributes to our economy and to the quality of our, our communities. Um, so, you know, we're, we're making a lot of mistakes and we don't have to. In this nation, we have enough technology um, and innovation to be able to find a way to, you know, have enough water for municipalities, for agriculture, for industry, and for the environment. We are smart enough to innovate ways that it can be a win-win for the economy and the environment. We can do this. We've done it in a lot of different cases. Um, But, again, there's this false dilemma in mainstream media and in, you know, the conversations that we're hearing play out day in and day out that uh, we have to choose. And that's a serious mistake because when we choose the economy, what we think, the choice we think we need to make right. for the economy over the environment, we degrade our water, we degrade our air, we degrade our health, and we degrade the opportunities that our children have in the future. Yeah, I mean, the first thing we probably have to do is, is not have that distinction so that they're working hand-in-hand because the, 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 that, that's the key is to change in the behavior and the way we look at things. Let me ask you, you have some briefings coming up in Washington this September which I think is uh, the 40th anniversary, if I'm right, about the, of the Clean Water Act. Yep. Um, and uh, can you kind of talk a little bit about what uh, the, the Global Water Act a- actually is and, and a little bit about that? Absolutely. Well, the Clean Water Act is something I think most people have heard of. Um, it was enacted 40 years ago by some very visionary people because rivers were catching on fire. <laughs> it's something we haven't seen since. But, um, but you know, it got people's attention. And so they enacted the Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, um, in an effort to uh, regulate the quality of our water um, so that all states had to abide by the same regulations and have the same quality of water for all Americans. A really great idea. And it's worked beautifully. Our rivers aren't catching on fire anymore. Um, there, we've vastly um, improved the quality of water that our, we have access to in our communities. Industries are, um, you know, not supposed to. A, a lot of them continue to do so. But um, under the Clean Water Act, 
you're not allowed to pollute a community's water resources. And, and I think that that's just common sense. Right. Forty years later, today, um, there are a lot of people in Congress who want to gut the Clean Water Act. And, um, you know, I, I have a lot of hope that that won't happen. But um, we're doing a Clean Water Act briefing on um, in September to help people understand why it's important celebrate it, understand how it's improved the quality of our water, the quality of our lives. And, um, and it's, we've got some great panelists. It's just going to be a great, great event. Do you think that um, we've come a long way since the BP spill in, in the Gulf? And, and it was such a, a, a dramatic and a horrible thing. Um, and, you know, you see these commercials now where BP is talks about come on back and all the people are talking about how everything is kind of getting back to normal. Number one, is it getting back to normal? Will it ever get back to normal? And kind of take maybe our listeners through a little bit of what happens when there's an oil spill and where does the oil go and what really happens to the, to the ecosystem? Well, you know, we, we were in the Gulf um, in 2009 um, looking at the impacts of the dead zone, which already was something that we – it was unfathomable. Um, you know, a dead zone the size of New Jersey um, every summer in the in the Gulf of Mexico um, is already a pretty terrible thing. In 2010, there was the oil spill, and so we went back, and the communities that were already struggling with the impacts of the dead zone were absolutely devastated by this oil spill. And, and um, you know, the people that I had met. I, just a year earlier, it looked like they had aged 10 years. These are communities who, you know, it, it's sort of hard to understand until you've been there, but they're, you know, communities of fishermen, people who um, are two, three, four generations into fishing, who grew up at their father's knee out shrimp fishing, or, you know, they their understanding of who they are, of their family's place in their community of what it means to be, um, a, you know, from Louisiana, a Cajun, whatever, is so tied to that resource, to the Gulf of Mexico, that the oil spill was like pulling that away from them. And they were left with no way to support their family, um, their self perceived self-worth as men and women, um, as fishermen, as Cajuns, was very undermined. And it was heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking to see it. And I think, you know, it underscores the idea that when we lose our water, we lose so much more of our community than we realize. Um, and, and I believe, you know, it, it's, in, it's in a lot of people's best interest to say, oh, well, we figured it out, we fixed it, the, the Gulf is getting back to normal. Um, my personal opinion is that when you have a, a spill of that magnitude and the quantity of dispersants that they put in is mind-blowing, um, without having a real clear understanding of what the impact of those chemicals would be on the ecosystem, it was really a huge chemistry experiment. And, you know, I've heard from, you know, people that I know down there who say, you know, we're catching shrimp with no eyes. 
We're seeing fish with lesions on them. We're finding dead dolphins on our shores. You know, it's it's still happening. And no one wants to talk about it. And right now we're very distracted with the upcoming elections and a whole host of other things. But in my opinion, that oil spill is something that will actually be felt for decades to come as wave after wave of consequence kind of becomes apparent. There's no way of really anticipating what it's going to be. But I'll tell you, I personally wouldn't, I mean, I don't eat seafood anyway because, um, well, for a lot of reasons, but I wouldn't eat seafood from the Gulf. I I just, and I wouldn't give it to my baby. Um, I'm sure a lot of it is fine, but how do you know? (laughs) How do you know? And what my friends down there are telling me really scares me. And I grieve for not only that, ecosystem and that incredible resource, uh, I grieve for the communities because their life will never be the same. Do you think it can repair itself? I mean, are, are Eventually, we... you know, it, it will. Um, will it ever be exactly the same? I don't know. I think, um, I, I, I think you know, the, the people making decisions were between a rock and a hard place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm referring to people from NOAA and, and the government. Um, right. Uh, I think they had to make a lot of quick decisions. I think they had to make a lot of gambles. Um, I, I know a lot of them, and they're good people. Did they make all the right decisions? I don't know. Could anybody in their position have made all the right decisions? I don't know. Um, but I don't think everything is back to normal, and I don't think it will be for a long time. And we just have to see how this continues to to progress. But certainly, um, you know, there have been other devastating oil spills, um, and uh, and those communities, you know, communities in Alaska and elsewhere are still feeling the impacts 10, 20 years later. So this isn't something that has just been fixed. There's no is way there, to fix it. Is there a country or a place you've been where you really feel they're, they're getting it right and they're doing things differently and they're more advanced and, and kind of maybe for a few minutes touch upon your trip to Jordan and you know, because uh, I was over there myself uh, uh, with King Abdullah, and I was trying to really understand because, you know, that, I mean, the, the, the river is kind of dried up. I mean, it's like, you know, things are just so much different. So I'm curious, one, who is getting it right? What country is getting it right? And, and where do you see big changes occurring? You know, a lot of countries are doing some things right and some things wrong, and I think it just is a, you know... The balance is different. In Europeans, there's pretty much unanimous consent that climate change is happening and they're taking steps to try to mitigate uh, their impact on the climate. In America, a lot of people are still in denial about that and believe it's not happening and it's not something we need to be concerned about. Um, so, you know, there's no legislation and, you know, it's sort of up to individuals and different municipalities to do what they can. Um, on the flip side... Europe's management of their oceans is pretty dismal. <laughs> and um, The United States has done incredible things to try to protect their ocean resources um, with room for improvement, of course, but there, there's been a lot of really good things happening. So, you know, I, I think everybody's doing something's right, something's wrong, um, and it's a constant struggle to make sure that we don't continue to lose these precious, resources um, and these precious places and it's 
you know, there's people who want to use them up and not leave anything behind, and there's other people who want to preserve them at all costs and never let anybody touch them or go into them. Um, and we're stuck in between those two extremes. And I think, you know, there's, there's an in-between, and that, that in-between is where we need to talk and we need to have a sensible conversation. Um, you know, not all dams are bad. You know, um, not all dams are good. No, let's talk about the good ones. Let's talk about the bad ones. Um, let's have a frank conversation about how we want to move forward in agriculture, with industry, what kind of chemicals do we want in our bodies. Um, because if chemi- chemical companies are making chemistry and, and, and um, putting them into the environment, they're going to end up in our bodies. You know, and, and things like um, bisphenol A, BPA, which has been taken out of a lot of children's um, bottles and toys, can lead. It's an endocrine disruptor. It's a hormone mimicking chemical, which can lead to hyperthyroidism and all sorts of really bad things. Do we want that in our environment? No. Do we want it in our bodies? Of course not. Um, should we be producing it and putting it out into the environment so it can get into our bodies and into our children's bodies? Of course not. But no one's stepping up to the plate and taking a really hard look at these chemicals and saying, we're not going to make them anymore. We're taking them off the market. We can still make everything we need to make without it. We're just, you know, chemical companies are making a lot of money by selling it, and no one's saying, hey, sorry, you can't make it anymore. It's making us sick. Um, I think we need to make some of those decisions and understand that the world won't stop spinning and we will continue to prosper and our economy will continue to grow, hopefully faster than it is right now. But we can live without a lot of these things that are making us sick. We can still be even better than before. And probably one of the things, and I know I think it was your grandfather talked about it a little bit, we certainly have an overpopulation issue going on, don't we? I mean, there is, I know that's a touchy subject with a lot of people, but the fact of the matter is there's only so much room on this planet and only so many resources and you know, I'm curious because uh, those are difficult questions to ask when you start talking about regulating population. I mean, normally those things are done naturally, but how does that play into all of this? And then also, um, uh, you know, you posted recently a blog about the Tennessee coal spill. You know, have we, I guess we're still learning about the BP accident. So I'd like to get your thoughts on that as well. Well, you know, population is a tricky issue, and, you know, there's, there's no doubt that um, this planet has a carrying capacity at the rate that we're consuming resources today. And, you know, it's, it's not practical or realistic to expect that people are going to decide to only have one child or two children or whatever. Um, you know, people want to have families. I have a baby, you know, and, and she's the light of my life, and, you know, I'll probably have another one. I think that's a natural part of everybody's life and something that we need to expect will continue. Um, that having been said, at the rate that our population is growing, uh, we need to expect that there will be less resources to go around. Um, especially if we don't start taking care of what we have. If we continue to pollute our water, if we you know, continue to destroy the land, if, if we aren't more sustainable in how we do things, we're not going to be able to, to increase our production. We're not going to be able to have the kind of health that we want to have. Um, and 
so I, I believe there, if Americans and, and other um, developed nations want to you know, tone down their consumption a little bit so that there's more to go around for all of the new people that are going to be arriving, then we can probably provide for everybody. But um, if, you know, the whole world can't live like Americans do, and that's what they want. They want to live like we do. Of course they want to live like we do. We want to live like we do. So that's where the sticky point is. And, you know, I think um, people are having smaller families just naturally. Um, You know, women want to work, and it's expensive to have a child, and that's increasingly the case in in emerging nations as well. So I think naturally our population growth will will start to um, decrease as just people want to manage their families and they want to have more Resources, financial resources. Well, we, cer- we certainly need to work with your, with Blue Legacy and and with others to try to uh, make the the planet a safer and better place with water. We we're our time is sadly up, uh, Alexandra. We you've been an incredible guest and and willing to share your journey for a second time with us. We're very grateful to you and for the work that you've done and. And are doing, and your entire Cousteau family has done over the years as, work, as conservationists and water advocates. I'd like to thank our listeners for tuning into A Current Life on Voice America Variety Channel. This is your host, Jimmy Gould, signing off. And please join us next Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, for our next episode. And until next time, I wish each and every one of you a journey filled with hope, inspiration, success. And Alexandra, my dearest thanks to you, and uh, I look forward to working with you on this project. Thanks so much, Jimmy. Thank you for being here. Thanks again for joining us for A Current Life on the Voice America Variety Channel. Please tune in to another great program with your host, Jimmy Gould, next Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time. We'll see you next week.